This is Journey Church Podcast. Here at Journey, we believe in encountering God and embracing people. From wherever you're listening, we hope you are encouraged by this week's message. Fifty-seven nights, bombs are being dropped on you. But no one feared. They simply went to work. They got on their bikes, did their deliveries. They took their babies for walks and bassinets. They did their job. Why? Why did they do that? September 11th, 2001, a plane crashed into the the, uh, World Trade Center in New York. Now imagine if that had happened every day for 57 days. See, something amazing happens when you try and cripple somebody's will. It gets stronger. So, now we're going to get into it. Just as a little recap of um, last week, uh, we'll, just go, we'll, we'll read Acts 7.59 uh, to Acts 8.4 really quickly. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep, and Saul approved of their killing him. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Paul began to destroy the church, going from house to house. He dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Well, what does that sound like? Now, I don't, like, in my mind when I was preparing this, I was like, should I compare Saul to a Nazi? No, that would be wrong. But in this example, Saul began to persecute the church ferociously, dragging people from houses, almost as though somebody was dropping bombs on the church of God. Night after night, he would drag them from their house. Night after night, he would lock them in prison. He would stone the believer. Do you believe in Christ? Too bad, you're getting stoned. That's their reality. And what did that do to the believers? See, this is what I love about the Bible. This is why I wanted you to to crack it open, because the Bible is is an amazing piece of literature. And what happens is the more you read it, the more you meditate, the more you study it, the more things are revealed to you. So I want to encourage you that if you don't read your Bible often um, or you think I've already read that part, reread it. We need to meditate on this day and night. And I'm going to show you examples how things from 1 Kings and Genesis are related to what's happening right now in, in Acts 8. How things from John and what Jesus preached are happening right now in Acts 8. Because the Bible does this everywhere. It's a work of art. It's not a rule book. If you're here this morning and think, yeah, I know the Bible's a rule book. tells me what, what to do and what not to do. I want to tell you that's wrong. The Bible is a story. And it's a beautiful story. And it's an interwoven story. And every single thread of what the Bible says can be traced back to a different part of what the Bible says. And Jesus does this on purpose. This is a work of art, friends. This, is, this might as well be the Mona Lisa hanging on your wall. This might as well be Van Gogh or another artist. I'm not really that familiar with art. Uh, but it might as well be something beautiful because that's what this is. It is a work of art. Amen? Who believes that? Okay, good. We're all on the same page. Stephen's death is the catalyst of the Christian movement. Stephen dies... Josh talked about this last week. Stephen dies, and what happens? We expect Christians to go underground, right? Let's hide. Let's get away from Saul, the destroyer. Let's hide, and we won't talk about our faith. We'll just keep it secret in our heart. Nobody will know. No, Stephen dies, and bam, these guys are gone. They're scattered, it says. And where does it say they're scattered? We pick up on Acts 8 and Philip in Samaria. So we're going to go through a few observances as I do this, okay? Things I observe while studying this, 
And then we're going to talk about some applications. Okay, this is very like, like get your notebook and pen out. We're taking you to school today, okay? Observance one. The execution of Stephen's death, though terrible, did more to empower the believers than it did to hinder them. Can we agree on that? From the scripture, those who have been scattered, in verse 4, those who have been scattered preached the word wherever they went. So, they were scattered, and what did they do? They preached the word. Can we agree that it did more to help the church spread the word of God than it did to hinder them? Let's agree on that. So, let me just quickly recap Acts 1, verse 8. Jesus says before he's ascended to heaven, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witness in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So, fulfillment is starting to take place. Verse 5 says, Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed Christ. So now we see what happened in Jerusalem. They're scattered, now it's happening in Samaria. And where else is it going to happen next? To the ends of the earth, class. Good. So who was Philip? Well, we see in Acts 6-5, and Josh talked about this last week, that Philip was appointed with Stephen to care for the widows. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and ministry of the world of the word. So among those men were Philip and Stephen. So this is who Philip was, not to be confused with uh, Philip the Apostle. So as I'm reading this, I notice something right away. This is our second observation today. That Philip was not ordained as a preacher. He was not ordained as an evangelist. He was not ordained as a healer or a miracle worker. Philip was ordained, literally, to wait on tables. That's, that was his ordination. We're going to get to the application, but just let that stew for a minute. Maybe this wasn't where he wanted to be. Perhaps there was something that he needed to learn or a skill he needed to develop, or perhaps he was simply being obedient to God. Whatever the case is, that was his ordination. So here in verse 5, it throws us into, the fir- into, into this story about Philip and Samaria. Verse 5, Philip went down to a city and proclaimed Christ there. So this is where I'm going to get really geeky for a minute. This language, like, when you study hermeneutics, or when you, like, hermeneutics, that word, I'm getting ahead of myself, hermeneutics is the study of Scripture. And more accurately, um, it's the study of all the Scripture, but to do this properly, you need to go into the minutia of the Scripture. So what I learned in school when I went to Bible college was that I need to take every single word and analyze that. And then I analyze that word within the sentence, and that sentence within the paragraph, and that paragraph within the movement. Because our chapters are, these, are these, were, these came after. The movements are what happens in the original scripture, right? Acts 8 is the start of a new movement, and that movement is the church expanding. So in here, in, in verse 5, it says, Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah. What's wrong with this sentence? Samaria isn't down from Jerusalem. Samaria is here. Jerusalem is here. So it's up. So if you were going to Edmonton, what would you say? I'm going up to Edmonton. If you're going to Lethbridge, what would you say? I'm going to, down to Lethbridge, right? I, le- I grew up in Vancouver. We came to Calgary every summer to see our grandparents. We said, we're going up to Calgary. We never said we're going down to Calgary. So what does this language mean? Why does he say I'm going da- Philip went down to Samaria? Down is a very specific term in Hebrew scripture. Down means away from God. Down means where God's not. We have this reference in Genesis. 
as uh, Genesis 37 uh, verses 25 and 35. 25 says, as they, sat uh, as they sat down to eat their meal, they looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were loaded with spices, balm, and myrrh, and they were on the way to take them down to Egypt. The use of up and down, and this is, this is uh, um, an excerpt from the story of, of Joseph being sold into slavery. But the use of down is important because it signifies where God is not. Then in verse 35 again, it says, uh, this is, uh, I'm, I'm missing some context for you guys, but it says, all his sons and daughters came to comfort him. He refused to be comforted. No, he said, in my mourning, I will go down to the grave to my son. So his father wept for him. So Joseph is being sold into slavery. His brothers fake his death, give his father this coat that's covered in blood. His father mourns and says, I'm going down. But the use of the, the, use of the word down is important because it signifies somewhere where God is not. Okay, we get that. So Philip says, I'm going the, Philip says, I'm going down to Samaria. This is away from God. God is not in Samaria, or at least has not been. But the whole mission of Jesus Christ and why he came is what? To reconcile us to himself. And he says it starts with Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And it happens that way because that's how... It, it happens that way because that's how we fell apart from God in the first place. We were all one people. We were all together with God. Then it got fractured, and there was a smaller people together with God. Then it got fractured again, there was a smaller people together with God. Then it got fractured again, and we had just the Jews with God. And then again, we had one man with God, Jesus Christ. So how we are restored to God is by going backwards. We go from Jesus to the Jews, from the Jews to Judea, from Judea to Samaria, from Samaria to all of us. That's how we work. That, that's, that's, that's the wonderful thing about scriptures. That's what you see when you read that. So verse 6 says that they paid close attention to what he said. So let's just read this, this passage here. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the miraculous signs he did, they all paid close attention to him. With shrieks, evil spirits came out, and many. Uh, uh, sh with shrieks, evil spirits came out of many, and many paralytics and cripples were healed. So there was great joy in the city. So this is important. It says that they paid close attention to him. It doesn't say that they believed him. So this is our third observance. The miracles captured their attention, but it wasn't the source of their faith. So although they saw what Philip did. They're like, oh, that's really cool. Oh, I'm happy that, that my son is delivered from an evil spirit. I'm happy that, that my daughter can walk. But that wasn't the source of their faith. They still, it doesn't say they believed. It just says they were happy. Right? There was great joy in the city. This is awesome. So the miracles captured their attention. But it didn't convert them. They didn't now believe what Philip was saying. Why? Verse 9, we get a glimpse of this. Verse 9 says, Now for some time a man named Simon had practiced sorcery in the city and amazed all the people of Samaria. He boasted that he was someone great. And all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, This man is the divine power known as the great power. So there was already somebody in Samaria giving them miracles. Ah, this makes more sense. This makes sense why a miracle, why, why Philip praying for somebody, saying in Jesus' name be healed, and that person being healed wouldn't automatically make them believe. They already had a sorcerer in their town doing this. Now to understand this and the importance of this, we can find that elsewhere in Scripture, in, in John 4. See, we need to understand Samaria. So we see that a couple places. In John 4, although... Uh, John 4 says, although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back, to, uh, went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria, so he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot on the ground of Jacob had given to his son Joseph. So he had to go through Samaria, and there he meets a Samaritan woman. And he has an encounter with, with this Samaritan woman. See, the, the Jews would often go around Samaria. If this is Judea, this is Samaria, 
and this is Galilee, they would go like this, just to avoid it. They didn't like the people, they didn't like the place. Why? It all seems like it's in the same country. And we understand why when we look at 1 Kings 12, 26, 26. Am I like confusing you guys yet? No? You're with me? So in, so in 1 Kings, we see uh, why that is. 1 Kings 12, 26 to 29. Jeroboam thought to himself, the kingdom will now likely revert to the house of David. If these people go up and offer sacrifices at the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem, they will again give their allegiance to their Lord, Rehoboam, king of Judah. They will kill me and return to King Rehoboam. After seeking advice, the king, Jeroboam, made two golden calves. He said to the people, it is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Here are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. One he set up in Bethel and the other in Dan. And this became a sin. The people became to worship the one Bethel and went as far as Dan to worship the other. What does that remind you of? Golden calf. Well, now we're going all the way back to Exodus. When Aaron set up the golden calf, and that was a grave sin to God. So you understand Samaria now. Samaria is a godless place. It became a sin. They rejected God, the God that brought them out of Egypt, and they set up golden calves for themselves in Samaria. And through that process, they fractured themselves from God. Okay, so there we had Israel as one nation, 12 tribes scattered against this region. Then two kings divided, and one king decided to set up golden calves, and that whole nation turned their back against God. So now we're down to one nation, that's the nation of Judah. Does that make sense? Samaria was just a godless place. God didn't live there. The kingdom that God desires for his people was fractured long ago. Samaria is a symbol of heresy for the Judean. The restoration of God's kingdom worked from the inside out. Okay, so we're into verse 9. Now, for some time, a man named Simon had practiced sorcery in the city and amazed all the people of Samaria. We read that. Verse 11, they followed him because he had amazed them for a long time with his sorcery. Is anyone else getting real Camelot vibes right now? Sorcery, Merlin, witchcraft. It says that the people were amazed by him. This is likely why they were joyful with Philip but not swayed in belief in Jesus. Why? They'd seen magic tricks before. They'd seen this before. Oh, you can heal that person? I saw that before. And maybe that was a trick to garner belief in somebody. But they had seen that from somebody else that represents godlessness. Verse 10 and 11 are meant to be contrasted with verse 6. So Philip was, has amazed the people and filled them with joy. But Philip amazed the people with his sorcery. Simon represents the fractured beliefs that existed in Samaria because of the divided kingdom. They were far from Jerusalem and far from the temple. They didn't have access to where God lived. So their kings made gods and placed them where they lived. Simon represents the sin that caused Samaria to be separated from Judah in the first place. See, Samaritans, the reason Rehoboam set up the calves is because in order to worship God, you had to go to the temple where God lived. And that temple was in Jerusalem. This is Old Testament. So they set up these calves and said, don't go down there, because if, if, if my people go down there, I'm going to lose them. Right? It's a control thing. If my people go down to, if my people go down to Jerusalem, I'm going to lose them. I need them to stay here and worship here. Then they won't feel like God's not with them. So I'm going to manufacture a version of God. I'm going to manufacture a replica, something that gives them a taste of what God's like. And this was Simon the sorcerer. He's a, he's a taste. He's not the real thing, but it's like, it's kind of, right? It's, it's magic. Well, Philip came. He's kind of doing magic. He's healing people. If we look back to John 4, Jesus says, not coincidentally, to the Samaritan woman in Samaria. A time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers 
will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. He says that because the Samaritan woman says, well, Rabbi, you say I have to go to the temple, but our ancestors worshiped on the mountain. And we just read that in 1 Kings, why that was. And Jesus says to her, a time is coming when that house won't matter. The house in Jerusalem won't matter. A time is coming where that, that mountain that you worship on doesn't matter. A time is coming and has now come when you will worship in spirit and in truth. And that's the Holy Spirit. And that's the truth of God. We know this to be true. Why? Because Philip is in Samaria. And Philip is bringing the word of God. So we see a shift in the whole narrative of the Bible right here in Acts 8. The entire narrative of how they worship and who God is has just changed. Is that not exciting? We are no longer beholden to a place to worship God. He doesn't live in a building anymore. He lives in me. And better yet, he lived in Philip. Because Philip was with, this, with the, the disciples when the Spirit of God came down and filled them with the Holy Spirit, and they went out and they preached the gospel. This is, like, this is history. This is what we're talking about today. A time has come when you will worship in spirit and truth, and this is what happened here. Philip came with spirit and with truth, almost as though the temple of God was with him. Hey, you don't have to go to the mountain. You don't even have to go to Jerusalem. You can do it right here. That's the shift. That's the movement change. God, this is exciting, man. I'm fired up about it. And then in verse 12, we see a shift in belief. Verse 12, well, when they believed Philip as he preached the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men, when, both men and women. These are our fourth observance. The people believed not at the miracles, but at the word of his testimony. Isn't that amazing? They've seen miracles before. They saw a sorcerer. Yeah, I get it. You can do a miracle. Now they have Philip doing the same thing. What was the difference between these two men? It was the word of his testimony. It was the word of God. That's the difference. They believed him when he preached the good news of the kingdom of God. It even says Simon believed. I've got, I got to stop getting ahead of myself. We're going to get to that application in a minute. So then we move to verse 14. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them. When they arrived, they prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit had not yet come upon any of them. They had simply been baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Okay, fun fact. Do you know that anybody raised Catholic have a Catholic background here? Do you know that this right here, this story, is where the term confirmation comes from? Isn't that cool? Why? Because Peter and John confirmed what happened in Samaria. They confirmed that the Samaritans had believed. And then they placed their hands on them to receive the Holy Spirit. I just thought that was really interesting. The church is moving at the speed of God here. We see that Peter and John are sent to confirm the reports that Samaria had accepted the word of God. Again, it says accepted the word of God. It doesn't say that they accepted the miracles of God. It says they accepted the word of God. Because it's easy to believe in a miracle for a moment. Right? Oh, you healed my leg, I believe. And Jesus talks about this, right? He talks about the ten lepers and how one came back to thank him. It's easy to believe when all of a sudden you're healed and you're like, great, my life is good, and you forget immediately. And there's no faith tied to the miracle. It's the word of God that they accepted. It's the word of God that they believed. That's the miracle. Peter and John prayed for the Samaritans to receive the Holy Spirit. Now, this is interesting. 
up until this point, nobody had, nobody had the need to pray for anybody to receive the Holy Spirit. This is a new thing. We're watching history be made. When we talk about Scripture, right, we talk about this is what Scripture says, right, and we, we kind of vet our beliefs through that. What we're reading here, this is brand new information. Nothing like this has been done before. The Holy Spirit came on the disciples and the apostles. Now they had the Holy Spirit. Nobody prayed for them to get it. They prayed. Like, oh, let's just, we're, we're together in a room. Let's just pray. They're praying. The Holy Spirit comes on them. Now they go to Samaria. Oh, man, these people believe in, in Jesus, the Messiah. Well, they were baptized with water. I guess we should, we should pray for them to receive the Holy Spirit. We don't. This is new territory. Nothing has been done before like this. So they had to let, put their hands on them, that they re- would receive the Holy Spirit. And again, that's Spirit-led. Why am I putting my hands on you to receive the Holy Spirit? All I know is I have it, and I want you to have it. So this is an emotional thing for them, right? This isn't like they didn't have liturgy and like laws that dictated that they do this. This is new. This was compassion. This is, I'm so happy for you. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit. Could you imagine being Peter or John? You don't know this is going to happen, right? I mean, Luke writes that it happened like this. But what if they just walked up and they're like, oh my, you got baptized. I'm so happy. I can't wait till you get the Holy Spirit. And then these people just freak out and they're filled with the Holy Spirit. That's got to be surreal. This, This is what they're doing, right? Oh, and all of a sudden, these Samaritans, they have the Holy Spirit. Okay, where am I? So verse 14, this is what happens. This is our fifth observance here. The apostles and disciples were doing things never done before. The placing on of hands was never done before this moment. They were moving at the Spirit's leading. So that's our observance there. Now we move to the perversion, I call it. And that's uh, verse 18. When Simon saw the Spirit was given at the laying on the apostles' hands, he offered them money and said, Give me also this ability so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. How many know that the enemy seeks to corrupt everything that God does? Any good thing that God has, the enemy wants to distort that, right? And again, we're talking, like I've talked today about the, the, uh, the woven fabric of Scripture. And we see this in Genesis 1, verse 3. Sorry, Genesis 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Right away, Genesis 3, we get the the impression that the enemy wants to corrupt what God has made for good. And this is exactly what's happening here. And if I'm reading this as an early Hebrew, this is the sense I'm getting. That something new and wonderful has been made by God. Now the Holy Spirit can be, can be imparted to people through prayer. And immediately, the enemy corrupts it. This is what I'm seeing. Simon says, give me this gift so that I may give it to others. See, he didn't want the gift, right? Simon, the sorcerer, didn't want the gift of the Holy Spirit. Simon, the sorcerer, wanted the ability to impart the gift. He wanted the control of the gift. The gift meant nothing. Only the distribution of the gift meant something to him. Now, Peter's response to this might seem harsh. um, Verse 20, Peter's, Peter's response says, May your money perish with you because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. That might seem harsh. But remember what Peter had been through. Harmon talked about this a few weeks ago. Ananias and Sapphira. 
They bring their gift to the apostles. But there was deception in it. The deception was that they had kept it. It was in their heart. And here it's the same deception. This is our sixth observance, that the use of money is is reflecting the disposition of the heart. Though Peter's response is stern, it's just. He, was already, he had already dealt with two people trying to use their worldly wealth to buy favor in God's kingdom. But that's not how God's kingdom works. How many of us know that's not how God's kingdom works? How many people here have tried to buy their way to the top of God's kingdom? How many? No one. It's a good, good thing you're here. You cannot get... Ahead in God's kingdom by buying your way there. And that, 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 the thought of doing that reflects the disposition of the heart. And Peter says this. He says, you have no part or share in the ministry because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness. And pray to the Lord in the hope that he may forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. Bitterness and captive to sin. That's what that is. In some ways, it may have been good that it was Peter that Simon approached on this. Peter had seen this type of behavior. And from a Judean, nonetheless, it might have been different if it was someone else who didn't experience this in their own community, in their own backyard. But they got it from an outside source first. They might have said, oh, it's just, it's the Samaritan. I knew they were bad. I knew God couldn't save them. But it wasn't. It was Peter. And Peter had just dealt with this, with Ananias and Sapphira. So if there was anybody fit to deal with Simon the sorcerer, it was Peter. God is so good. Okay, thank you for tracking with me there. Now what? We've gone through this. We've worked through Philip and Samaria, Simon the sorcerer, Peter and John coming, the Holy Spirit moving, Simon being dealt with, and the sin and bitterness of Simon's heart being dealt with. Now what do we do? So here's where I'm going to kind of overlay some applications onto the observances that we walk through together, okay? Observance one. The execution of Stephen's death, though terrible, did more to empower the believers than it did to hinder them. Here's my discernment on the application here. Our trials and tribulations can sometimes lead to our greatest victories. Amen? The Nazis bombed London for 57 consecutive nights. If that's not a trial or a tribulation, I don't know what is. And how many of us know who won the war? See, it's not, it's not the hardships, it's not the trials, it's not the tribulations that dictate the outcome. It is our perseverance through those things. One of my favorite movies is Rocky no, it's, it's Balboa. It's like Rocky Seven in the trilogy. And if you, like, you probably know where I'm going, but Rocky's famous speech to his son in this movie, where he goes, if you get knocked down, you get back up again. That's how winning is done. I love it. I love Rocky. But that is, our trials and tribulations don't dictate the outcome of our circumstances. What dictates the outcome of those circumstances is how many times we get back up from it. Amen? And this is what we see here. We see that the church of God, though they were dragged out and beaten and killed, it didn't matter. They kept persevering. They kept preaching the word of God. When I'm reading this, this is what I see. I don't know what you guys see, but this is what I see. And we don't, like, this isn't, this, the, the believers didn't know what was going to happen. They didn't know that Stephen is going to get stoned to death. 
and that the church is going to scatter, and that Philip goes to Samaria, and that the Samaritans believe, and that Peter goes to Samaria, and he confirms the belief of the believers, and then Peter lays his hands on the Samaritans, and they receive the Holy Spirit, and then Peter goes to Joppa after he goes to, where am I? I lost my train of thought. After he goes to to Samaria, and that Cornelius sends for Peter, and that Peter goes to Cornelius, and boom, now the Gentiles are saved. They don't know that's going to happen, but what they do know is that the amount of trials they have to go through doesn't matter, but they're going to keep get back up again. They're going to keep getting back up again. Observation two, Philip was not ordained as a preacher, an evangelist, a miracle worker. He was simply full of the Spirit and wise. And guess what? When you're full of the Spirit, you are all those things. You can be all those things. And that's what I observe. Philip was meant to wait on tables. And what does he do when the church is scattered? He starts preaching the Word of God. Here's the application. In my mind, our serving doesn't always need to be dictated by our talents. Your talents, friends, are going to shine through wherever you serve. If you're in kids' ministry, your patience is going to shine through. If you're at cafe, your hospitality is going to shine through, but also your leadership. If you're serving on worship, your gifts, no matter what your talents are, and let's hope they're singing and musical, are going to shine through. Your gifts will shine through. Abel's clapping like, yeah, preach. God, had made, God has made you and formed you. You will be and become whatever it is he has for you. But the mission of God is too big for us to sit on the sidelines and wait for someone else or something else better to come our way. This might be convicting for some of you, but I'm going to tell you, if you're not serving now, start serving. If you're coming week after week and you're getting fed, feed in. And they, like, am I being harsh here? Come on. Philip waited tables, and then he preached the word of God and did miracles, and we can do the same. Observation three, the miracles captured their attention, but it wasn't the source of their faith. Man, we're getting into the good stuff now. The source application here, the source of our faith is Jesus Christ. Yes, we believe in miracles. Yes, we believe they still happen. But we're not waiting on a miracle because the miracles already come. The Son of God had come down to earth, was crucified, was raised from the dead. We have hope that He raised from the dead. We believe that. You're in the house of God because you believe that Christ raised from the dead and is living. We don't serve a dead God. We serve a living God. And that's our hope. This is our hope. And I feel like sometimes we phase Jesus out of our lives. We live in North America, one of the most prosperous places on earth. And we have made God redundant. We get our miracles from our doctors. We get our miracles online. We get our miracles on Amazon when we need them the next day. Now, I'm not, I love Amazon Prime, don't get me wrong. But we've phased them out. We don't need Jesus to come through with a meal. We don't need Jesus to come through with clothes on our back. We don't need Jesus to come through with a broken leg or with leprosy or a skin disease or blindness. We don't need that. Why? Because we live in Canada and healthcare is free. No, I love free healthcare, don't get me wrong. But we phased them out. And the hope and the source of our faith is not the miracle that comes, it's the miracle that happened. That Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, it says in Hebrews. That's our hope.
Observation four, the people believed not at the miracles, but at the word of the testimony. Go and tell somebody. Every single one of you in this room has a story to tell. You have a story of how God rescued you. You have a story of how he lifted you up out of the cistern, like it says in Genesis. You have a story about how you were headed down to Egypt, like it says. And you also have a story about how he raised you up. And maybe you're in the middle of your trip down to Egypt. Friends, he will lift you up. I promise you. He's done it for me. The same God that I'm reading about here has done it for me. He's lifted me up out of the muck and the mire. He has placed my feet on solid ground. I know this to be true. So you just got to tell somebody. And I know it's hard. I know there's moments where you might feel like, oh, I might ruin a relationship here. Trust me, you won't. You won't. I have friends that I've been going, that I went to high school with, I've known for years. And guess what? I talk about Jesus all the time, and they're still my friends. They don't like to hear it sometimes, but they're still my friends. They still call me. They still want to hang out. Because no matter how many times I talk about what God's done in my life, one time they're going to believe me. One time, and that's all it takes. Our fifth observance. The apostles and disciples were doing things never done before. The placing of hands was never done before this moment. They were moving at the Spirit's leading. Now this, this is the big application here, okay? We just read about how Philip went to Samaria. We understand what happened, the leading of the Spirit. We understand the disciples had never done this before. But here's the thing. Things are happening in our church, in our country, in our, in our community that have, the church has never faced before. We've never faced these sorts of things. And we are moving at the Spirit's leading. And if we're not grounded in the Holy Spirit, if we're not grounded in what God has to say for us, if we're not focusing on the Holy Spirit and listening to that small, still voice, we're going we're gonna to let the greatest story ever told just walk right by. How many millions of miracles, how many thousands of events have taken place since the Bible is written that haven't been written down, that happened because people listened to the Spirit of God at work? Because people listened, they heard God. They thought, I know the Bible doesn't have any context here. There's no context for what's about to happen. But I'm going to listen to the Spirit because this, this is how God wants us to live. With the Spirit dwelling inside of us. We're facing challenges no one else had to face. The church has never been pulled in so many directions as it is today. You have the Holy Spirit of the living God inside you. And if you don't have the Holy Spirit, we want to pray for you today. And I like... I know you walked into a Pentecostal church and maybe you didn't expect this to be a Pentecostal church because there's no signs. But we are. So we believe that the Holy Spirit works and we believe that we're going to put our hands on you and you're going to receive the Holy Spirit. And we don't think that it's going to look funny or we don't think that it's going to look like anything. We believe that you're going to receive it. And if you're going to start crying, that's okay. If you're going to fall down, that's okay. The point is that you need to receive the Holy Spirit. You, have may, you may believe in the Word of God. You may believe in that testimony. You may believe in the miracles God's done in your life, but nobody's ever prayed for you to receive the Holy Spirit. That's what we're going to get to today. 
and you're going to receive the Holy Spirit. And it doesn't have to look like anything, but you're going to receive him. Because he wants to be part of your life. The same God that raised Jesus from the dead lives in me. He lives in you. That's the same spirit. And I know I keep saying that, but I want it to sink in because that is big news. The God that formed the universe. The God that spoke it into existence. The God that hovered over the surface of the deep and said, let there be light. He's the God that says, let there be light in your life. He's the same God that wants to impart the Holy Spirit to you. If you're feeling dry, like you don't have that spirit, like you don't have that discernment, like you don't see these things that I'm seeing in Scripture, the Holy Spirit wants to reveal them to you. Lastly, the use of money is reflecting the the disposition of the heart. God's kingdom is upside down to this one. It just is. Friends, don't let this one consume you. The enemy has lied to you greatly. He has told you that in order to have a good life, you need an RSP that's full. He has told you that in order to have a good life, you need to not worry. You need to not stress financially. You need to save for your children's education. You need to buy a bigger house. You need to buy a boat and a lake house. And you need to be comfortable. And that's a good life. He has lied to you. The gift of God is not those things. The gift of God is the Holy Spirit. That's the good life. That's the life you want. Nothing will ever quench the thirst inside you that you feel like the Holy Spirit. We're going to close in prayer, and I'm going to ask that those that want to receive, well, first of all, I'm going to ask that the Holy Spirit come. I'm going to ask that our prayer team comes up. I'm going to ask that if you haven't received the Holy Spirit, that you come up and receive the Holy Spirit. And it doesn't have, like I said, it doesn't have to look like anything. But if you want the power of God in your life, if you want the power to move at the Spirit's leading, this is, this is why we're here. This is why we're here. So we're going to close in prayer. The worship team's going to play. And if this is something that's burning inside you, that you know, you, I believe, I've been baptized, this is the missing piece. Get on up. Father, thank you. Jesus, thank you for your spirit. Thank you for your words, Father. Thank you for the word of God that we can read this scripture, Father, and we can believe in all our heart that it is true. Jesus, that we can see the threads from Genesis to Revelation of you working and you designing. Father, we pray, Holy Spirit, that you descend on this place. We know you're already here, Jesus. We, we pray for you to come into this place. And we pray for you to move in every, singles, in every single person's heart that they would feel if this is something that you're wanting for them. Holy Spirit, if you want to, you, you don't need us to put our hands on anybody. Father, you can meet everybody where they're at right now and you can fill them with the Holy Spirit, tongues of fire on their head. But Father, we believe this is a relationship moment. We are excited that people want to receive the Holy Spirit. We are excited that we, want, that we can be a part of that. Jesus, I pray for every man, woman, and ch- child in this place, that their hearts will be attuned to you, that they would listen to your voice, that they would feel the tug and pull on their heart, that I need wisdom, I need spirit. Thank you, Jesus. Could you all all stand up with me?
Thank you for joining us today on Journey Church Podcast. For more information about our ministry, visit myjourney.church.